It was over before I even knew what it was about originally. Now we're just back to the, back to the big three, big three. We are like the big main, the big main one. Yeah, we're like, it's the place in Scotland, Scotland, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Churchill, Churchill. Better than, better than Scotland, 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 Hey, you there. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, a place you can hear us talk about the morbid symptoms of the interregnum. Today, we've got the Tory party, we've got the Labour party, and maybe even some Bunga Bunga party. So let's find out who we is. We have the whore that is George, we have the cunt that is Phil, and we have a very special guest, a total git, the gitos that is Luke. Please, my dudes, introduce yourselves. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you just did introduce me. I'm George, or I tweet at Polwek. I've never been introduced like that before, and I am almost speechless. I'm Philip, and I tweet at the Philippics. Uh, I'm Luke. I tweet at Luke S. Gittos1986, and I also write for Spiked Online. Excellent. I'm Alex Hochuli, uh, and I tweet at Alex double underscore 1789. So, uh, let me tell you how this thing's gonna run today. Uh, first off, we're gonna be getting to know the real Luke, a man once called a sexual conservative, um, and maybe he's gonna explain a little bit about what that means, um, or maybe not, and he's gonna try to swerve that whole discussion. Um, and then we're gonna get into the meaty stuff. It's maze malaise, the existential threat to civilization posed by mild social democracy, led by a jam-making hippie who get this, doesn't want nuclear annihilation, um, and for that I'm very disappointed. And even better, we may even have some fully mechanized austerity straight space nationalism in the guise of the UKIP candidate for Suffolk South. We're going to hear a little bit more about that later on, but it's the UK general election, and I can't actually believe I'm saying this, but British politics is kind of exciting uh, for the first time in my life. Um, so, let's go around the room. My friends, what is up? George, what's going on? Yeah, so I mean, what have I been thinking about this week? Um, a lot of a lot of British politics. I think you're right. It is now exciting. It's uh, we've got something to talk about, um, which which isn't which is based in Britain and isn't completely boring. Phil, what is up? What's up? Um, I wouldn't say I'm that excited about British politics. Um, it's interesting what's happening. Um, I'm not as excited as I was, say, you know, in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum, when the whole ruling elite seemed to crumble, and you had all the backstabbing and everyone gouging each other's eyes out and climbing on top of each other. Um, what I've been thinking about, I guess, is um, so with the May's Theresa May's, the Prime Minister's latest speech, "Enough is Enough" speech in the aftermath of the um, terror attack in London last night. Um, and this has been cast as uh, she's put forward like four new things that apparently are going to signal a new, more um, robust approach to the threat posed by jihadi terrorism. Um, and yet, despite that, she's made this still makes this claim um, that the jihadists and jihadis represent a perversion of Islam. And there's this, and I just was thinking about this, and they cannot, it's incredible how they cannot let it go. So all governments and all ruling elites that have kind of been engaged in the war on terror, for all the kind of brutality and mass murder, invasions of multiple countries, 
secret black sites, torture of innocent people, torture of guilty people um, without you know anything resembling like a trial, mass survey. Despite all of that, they keep on insisting and they're unwilling to relinquish um, this kind of weird totalitarian urge to not only do all of those things, but also define what counts as religion. So when they say Islam is a peace-loving religion, whatever, what have you, and it sounds kind of um, nice and pink and, you know, cuddly, what they're really saying is that they get to define what people even get to believe and to think. Um, and it's an incredibly um, far-reaching claim, political claim on the behalf of governments, that they get to define what religion is and fantastically creepy uh, needs to be called out. No, it's good to know something a little bit about you personally, Phil. That was not, that was nice to learn, um, and also that it's uh, that I thought you... that's something that's something that's something pink, <laughs> and that's something pink I is nice. You were asking what I was doing. Oh. Yeah, learn, didn't pink. say learn about me personally. Can and last just... time you learned something about me personally, you said it was too personal. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's right. That's because it was too boring. But um, yeah, so we're going to move on to Luke. And, and just as a note, I also speaking of the totalitarianism, I hope that we're able to get this podcast out before Theresa May bans the internet. That would be nice. Uh, Luke, what's the story? Well, what I've been thinking about this week, um, I attended my first ever electoral hustings um, in an area which is quite interesting because it's um, South Bermondsey, which is a seat that was once held by Simon Hughes. He's now trying to win it back from the Labour incumbent, uh, Neil Coyle. Um, and I think I echo some of Phil's doubts about the excitement of this election because I don't certainly don't think there's much excitement in London because almost all, I mean, in our local seat, Bethnal Green and Bow, it's a, it's a Labour majority by some way. I mean, the, the campaigning is pretty, I mean, Rashrana Ali, who's our local MP, is out on the streets all the time, but there's not an enormous fight going on. The Tories have put up a complete no-hoper of a candidate. Um, the Liberal Democrats similarly have turned turned out someone completely hopeless. Um, and there just much isn't much of a fight. I mean, in terms of the major issues, uh, much you know, our local constituent uh, contenders pretty much agree on the issues around Brexit, on on uh, on the economy, all these sorts of things. And really, I, it's, the reason it's difficult to get excited is because um, Labour at the moment isn't really a party. It's a, it's a collection of constituency MPs who are campaigning on largely on their record, many of whom hate the leader, hate the direction the party is going in. Um, and I think that any shift towards Labour um, or, or, or positive result for Labour will be interpreted uh, at least by the by the MPs as a victory for them rather than them as a party. Um, so just going back to that South Bermondsey hustings, it was the most boring entire <laughs> life. <laughs> really have to sort of, uh, you know, the people that show up are, you know, the usual people that will show up at hustings. There's absolutely no real popular interest in this contest. And it's arguably one of the most interesting contests, um, at least in, in London, because you have this uh, Lib Dem uh, stalwart, Simon Hughes, going up against a sort of uh, a relatively new incumbent in the form of Neil Coyle. But even there, the, the issues are all about uh, very local, both campaigning on their records, both, uh, I mean, it's actually got quite nasty in person over there in South Bermondsey. So, well, so, um, so, Simon Hughes, who famously ran a very homophobic campaign back in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, the straight option when he ran it against <laughs> Peter Tatchell. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's it's all, I mean, I think the, the excitement is rapidly dispelled the moment you step in and actually listen to any of the people who are campaigning talk. 
Right. So I think we might have to, we've like, we've su- successfully talked down any sort of excitement about this. We're going to have to make stuff up and pretend that it's actually really <laughs> exciting. I think we're going to move on and uh, actually get to know Luke personally a little bit better, a little bit more intimately. Um, let me see, introduce him, actually. He's a... Intimately. He, in, intimately. Right. Alex, I don't think you, you briefed Luke for, for what he's really going to be experiencing. <laughs> what here. have I got into here? What is this? I'm uh, terrified. Yeah, we're going to crack on. Um, Luke, uh, for listeners, Luke Gittos is a, is a criminal lawyer. Um, he's the director of the City of London Appeals Clinic. He's uh, also the legal editor at Spiked Online and the author of Why Rape Culture is a Dangerous Myth. And he's also got a new book coming out later this year that we're going to learn a little bit more about in a second. Um, but first of all, Luke, tell us a bit more about the law clinic. What is it and why do you think it's important? The law clinic basically plugs a gap. Uh, in uh, publicly funded legal services. If you are someone who is maintaining their innocence of a very serious crime in prison, you have absolutely no uh, help from anyone to fund an appeal. Um, There is no legal aid and uh, appealing can cost tens of thousands of pounds. Obviously, most people don't have that kind of money. So what we do is we take those cases and use them to teach students, new law students, about uh, criminal law and criminal litigation. It works very well because the students want to learn this stuff uh, and it's exciting, it's interesting. They're working on serious cases, complicated cases. Uh, And obviously uh, for the clients, the people that we're working with, uh, it's sort of a lifeline that they just wouldn't have otherwise. So it works quite well. We're also looking to do research, uh, produce uh, sort of perhaps some media content, maybe even a podcast uh, around criminal justice issues, around policing uh, and around uh, Stuff like that. You say you're going to compete with us in podcast territory, huh? Yeah, we're going to wipe you out of the market. We're going to wipe <laughs> you out of the market three very, very quickly. You don't know that you're yeah, reckoning the three very... finest legal minds in the country. So, you know, I think uh, I, bring it on. Look, guys, I was, on. I, I, was one of, <laughs> I was one of your listeners and now I'm a contributor. So I've, I've probably fallen out of the pool of listeners, at least for next week, because <laughs> I'm not going to listen to myself. <laughs> so... It's ever dwindling, you know. Cool. No, that's interesting. I mean, what's what is the legal situation in the UK such that this has become a necessity? I mean, has there been a change? What has changed is massive cuts to uh, legal aid, particularly around appeals. So you used to be able to access relatively decent funding to consider someone's case for an appeal. Um, that's just gone now. Um, but also... I think there are some areas, particularly uh, that the Court of Appeal has become a lot more strict uh, in what it will uh, allow through its gates. And it's it's known to be quite an intellectually dishonest court, putting it in the most sort of black and white terms. So uh, by the time people have come to us, they've usually uh, been through the Court of Appeal and now looking to go to what's called the Criminal Case Review Commission, which is sort of the highest possible place you can take uh, an appeal in this country. Um, and I think a lot of the time the students are shocked with what gets through the system, <coughs> you know, the basis upon which people can be convicted, um, often on quite thin and scant evidence. Um, so, yeah, I think a combination of those things uh, makes it quite important. So you're, so you're the, the cynical old hand um, taking on these innocent young law students and, and showing them the way of the world. That's it. There's lots of uh, possible comparisons in popular culture. Um, the old Jewish guy, the old Jewish guy from The Wire, 
I think if he had a sort of imagine him sort of leading an aspirational group of young law students, yeah. that's sort of what I'm aiming for. Um, what, encouraging mean, a complete. You mean the Jewish guy who like is in with the mob in um, in Baltimore? You mean that guy in the wire? Exactly right. Uh, and I think the less questions we ask about how the clinic is managed and the kind of support we rely on, the better. I've I've um I've got a I've got a serious question as well. If I could interject, go for it. I guess if you could talk us through, Luke, like um, to make it kind of concrete and real for someone, because when you say there's no legal aid um, and that there is, you know, kind of diminished bases of support. So if somebody was, you know, kind of your average person who has some kind of basis of income, maybe they have a, you know, some kind of um, maybe they have a mortgage or they have some kind of property. Very ordinary person gets accused of something really terrible. And how do they um, what would make what is it about the legal situation in the UK now that would make um, their position that much more difficult than it would have been in the past? Well, for very recently, they've introduced a cap on uh, what you can have and what you can earn uh, over which you will not receive um, legal aid without having to pay a contribution. So ordinarily, anyone earning over £26,000 is completely disbarred from receiving legal aid. Um, if they do get it, uh, they will have to pay often very significant contributions towards the cost of their legal aid. So it's not really legal aid at all. It's just they're paying, but they're paying the government rather than the lawyer directly. So uh, you own, you know, for example, you earn over £26,000 or you have £26,000 or more of assets. Um, you will have to pay a very high sum of money, often uh, a sort of a, a, a sum which is unreachable for a lot of people because it's a sizable chunk of their monthly earnings um, and it can be devastating people have to sell houses uh, to fund their defense people have to um, uh, you know settle for lawyers with whom they have absolutely no relationship which can also be difficult so if you if, if anyone that it's it's very very tough uh, and that cap was introduced very 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 recently our the people who work at my firm sometimes some of them have been working for 30 years or so uh, and they say that, you know, there was a time when people would get legal aid as a matter of, uh, you know, almost as a matter of principle. You know, the idea that state brings a case against you, the state should fund your defence if you choose to uh, rely on that option. Um, you know, the, the burden of, of, of defending oneself can be very, very high. Um, and there used to be a belief that the state should bear the cost of that. That has now gone. And interesting, I think it also ties in with this diminished um, respect I think for the sort of presumption of innocence it's like there is a sense in which people think well if you've got caught up in a criminal allegation there's probably you're probably a bit of a wrong in any way mm. um, and therefore should should chip in um, so I, I and legal aid was at least built in criminal cases legal aid was built on the assumption that people were entirely innocent until proven guilty and therefore should not have to pay out significant sums in order to fund their defense um, that's just gone, I think. That's that's really tragic and, and quite frightening, um, the extent to which I guess that leaves people at the mercy of the state. And I think it's also, it's, it sounds like something which, uh, in the context of austerity politics, is an aspect which has been rather less discussed in terms of uh, state cuts, um, and one which in some senses is a little bit more, even more frightening than, than cuts to, to care, for example, um, or to unemployment insurance. This is an interesting point. So, so some of my colleagues complained that legal aid is never seen as what's called a frontline service. It's never seen in the same way as the NHS. 
um, because I guess there is a popular conception that um, those who will need to rely on it are criminals. But I mean, I'm afraid every day we get people coming into our office who, you know, could be absolutely anyone and find themselves in a really difficult position precisely because of these kinds of cuts. Um, and, you know, people just don't get outraged about it as, as in the same way that they do with the NHS. You know, you see barristers going on strike, um, you know, solicitors walking out refusing to do work, but it's all pretty internal. It's all pretty with it maintained within the profession. It famously fails to inspire the public imagination. Um, it never has done. It's, it's been an issue um, for at least the last 15, 20 years, but the public just don't seem to be into it and, and and especially around you're right around austerity politics you know that that discussion around austerity never doesn't really uh, get in touch with um criminal legal aid it's sort of its own its own beast in that respect yeah that's that's really interesting um and it sounds like the the legal clinic does a, a lot of good work and we just restate the name it's a city of london appeals clinic um moving on to something i guess which is only tangentially related but you've written about about rape, about rape culture, and I guess you probably would have gotten a lot of shit in terms of being called a rape culture denialist, I suppose. Tell us a little bit briefly about your last book and uh, and what the reaction to that has been. I wrote that book because I'd actually written a lot of articles pointing out how a lot of old myths about rape still persisted um, in a way which is quite striking. So in 2010, a, a very senior uh, member of uh, the judiciary published a report into um, reporting around rape and uh, reporting around sexual violence and the public discussion on rape and sexual violence. It's a stern review, which was published in 2010, very highly publicized report. Um, and it really attacked the level of public discussion around rape and sexual violence. It said that it was that the discussion around rape and sexual violence was having a really detrimental impact on the ability of the justice system to deal with it. So for example, um, it highlighted that the idea that the rape conviction rate was extremely low is completely false. When people say that the rape conviction rate is low, they are simply wrong. Um, the rape conviction rate um, is not as many people think 3% or 5%. Um, the rape conviction rate is actually around 60%. It was at an all-time high two years ago um, at 65%. And it's actually very high in the context of other offences. Um, what that report in 2010 drew attention to was the fact that people were confusing the conviction rate with the attrition rate. So the attrition rate being the number of reports made to the police that eventually end in a conviction, whereas the conviction rate is the number of cases that reach court that end in a conviction. So. The, the sum of that, but the, the reason I found it depressing was that this idea still was still bandied around pretty habitually, and it still is, you know, the idea that the criminal justice system just can't cope with rape and sexual violence is still pretty prominent, and it's still talked about as if it's gospel. What I've realised is not that actually you get a lot of shit when you write something like this, it's that people just don't want to talk about it. People don't want to have public debates about rape and sexual violence. They don't want to openly discuss rape and sexual violence because it raises an awful lot of difficult problem, uh, difficult questions. What they tend to do is look at the title of the book and assume they know what the book says. They very rarely read it. Yeah, I guess it's quite a sensitive subject and, and also people are probably 
uh, even when making maybe a sensible cor sort of corrective point based on facts, as I think I suppose your your book tried to do, uh, you get accused of not only of being insensitive but of, uh, of of denying or adding to the problem. Um, so I guess it's quite a quite a tricky subject to to deal with. It is, and um, you know, you get called an apologist is the is the word that gets thrown around the most. Um, but the book actually starts with by saying that, that it's not really a book about rape, about the crime of rape. Um, it's about the commentary around the crime of rape. The level of hysteria and anxiety around rape, I think, um, in many ways misrepresents the genuine problems that do still exist around that crime. So it's like the the, the, the public discussion is very different to the reality. Yeah, no, that, that's so I've it. actually got a question here. Um, Luke, who called you a social cuckservative, or was that Alex? It's a sex sexual cuckservative was the name. Yeah, is, was that the insult? Sexual. Did somebody throw that at you? Yeah, this was Roosh V, who, um, Roosh V is the pickup artist who um, said appalling things about rape and sexual violence, basically arguing for the legalisation of rape on private property. Um, and I wrote, and he got banned from coming into the country for a little while. Um, and he'd write, written some awful books um, about basically saying, when you get a woman back to your house, just assert your will um, and get her to do what you want her to. Um, and so I wrote an article about him when he was banned, saying that his views are appalling, retrograde and awful. But the fact that we don't want to talk to him about them is equally a problem. And we should talk to him about it and we should argue with him about this topic. Um, and we shouldn't ignore him and hope he goes away. He but then can I wait? So but when you say that, so to give you the kind of the opposite point of view, he's I mean he seems like a total kind of creep and loser. His followers seem to be losers. Um, you know, his kind of uh, social media reputation, such as it is, seems to be overinflated by controversy. I mean, you know, why why do we need why does anybody need to talk to him seriously? Well, the situation was that the I think at the time the Home Office had actually prevented him from coming into the country. So obviously that's a very different issue to just not inviting him to debate. I wouldn't invite him to a discussion on sexual violence. I agree that there is no point in inviting him for the sake of it. But the idea that you would um, the idea that you would celebrate the state shutting him out of the country because you therefore would not have to uh, be at risk of being exposed to his views, I think is a very different thing. And I think, you know, he's but I, he's the kind of individual that could really benefit from addressing down, so to speak, in public. Maybe even um, literally. And I, also, and I certainly don't think. Yeah, maybe we could sort of ritually strip him. And I mean, we have to be really the one thing I would say is that now. That, that article that's caused me a sexual conservative is one of the first things that comes up <laughs> when you Google my name. <laughs> it's like, do you know what? It's not good for uh, any, you know, it's it's not a good thing to have on your Google record, the name, your name next to sexual conservative. So I'm I'm wary of mentioning him at all because he'll write something else and then his, his followers will start, you know. Well, okay, so we, will, we, definitely, won't yeah. link, we definitely won't link to that article uh, in this book. Yeah. Do, you often, <laughs> yeah, no, do, you often, do you often Google your name to check, like, what it's linked with? Every week, yeah, every week. No, <laughs> no I, I, I don't Google it very often, but I inevitably have to Google it a couple of times a month to make to, just to check there's nothing more of this stuff 
um, working its way up the rankings because you know potential clients can google my name and see what see what's up there that's the only bad one actually i have to say that's the only one that's particularly awful and uh, yeah, and i guess getting uh, getting on the wrong side of these weird men's rights activists and uh, the alt right and the alt light as they're called um i guess doesn't do you any favors really um they can be pretty vicious online um but let's move on to something spend else a lot of time online and they do spend a lot of time on they are extremely online um but uh, let's let's see who you're going to offend in your next book. Um, I mean, I think any book should really aspire to offend at least someone. So I think you should tell us a little bit about it. It's a new book for Zero Books, I understand, uh, which should be coming out sometime this year. And it's about human rights and civil liberties in an age of terrorism. Um, for Just a shout out for listeners who might have missed it. We discussed jihadism in a lot more depth last week. Um, so hopefully what follows now with Luke would be a good companion to that so tell us a bit about the book Luke well it's um I started writing it um earlier this year I'm under contract with Zero to to finish it um around uh, later this year It'll probably be out next year um but the, the idea was initially to to sort of put out a popular polemic against the Human Rights Act um putting a left-wing case um against the Human Rights Act because there's loads of really good uh, left-wing critiques of the human rights movement um, some actually really good books that have recently been written attacking the uh, human rights movement and its institutions. Um, but the idea was to sort of situate that in the context of the uh, human rights uh, debate in the UK and the Human Rights Act, um, and particularly now in the context of Brexit, arguing basically that freedom doesn't need human rights. Um, and actually, we could probably be a lot more freer in the classical sense um, without human rights. Now, I think in, in the light of recent events, it will have to um, deal with a lot more material. And it's 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 obviously frustrating because um, and, and, and deeply sad in a way that I will keep having to rewrite passages of it because the state's response to different incidents has been markedly different, actually, on, on, on each occasion in Westminster and with respect of um, London. We see um, they are very different responses that come out from from people like Theresa May, who is, after all, you know, sort of the godfather of uh, in increasing state power increasing state surveillance um so we're gonna i'm gonna try and work in a lot more about um responses to terrorism but but the, but the original idea the the, the bulk and the bulk of the argument is attacking uh, the human rights framework and showing how really um for human rights and human rights courts um promote a very degraded idea of what constitutes freedom um and that if you really believe in civil liberties like freedom of speech, detention without charge, or you know, resisting detention without charge, you don't want to rely on human rights because more often they will rubber stamp incursions into civil liberties rather than preventing them. That's interesting. I mean, that really runs counter to a lot of uh, sort of tacit left liberal assumptions that the Human Rights Act and uh, Britain's membership of the EU, even in a broader sense, is a bulwark against uh, incursions against freedom. Uh, exactly. Absolutely. I mean. Taking one particular issue, um, detention without charge, you know, New Labour tried to introduce indefinite without charge in the aftermath of September 11th. They, they did it for a while. It was then challenged under the Human Rights Act uh, and was successful, but it was successful in a very qualified way um, and effectively in a roundabout fashion led to the introduction of control orders. Um, and also allowed for a short period of detention without charge. So we still allow um, for detention without charge, often for, you know, periods of up to 24 days, 26 days. And so what happened was that we detention without charge 
you know, was completely undermined. But yet the human rights lobby tend to present the Human Rights Act as effective as protecting our rights not to be detained without charge because of a decision which, uh, you know, slightly modified the state's power to detain people without charge. I mean, in reality, that should be seen as a defeat for civil liberties because, you know, the post 9-11 environment in this country is completely changed around civil liberty. And it's many of the traditional freedoms that we enjoyed have collapsed. Um, under the reign of the Human Rights Act, you know, all of these changes have come in since 1998 when when that law was passed. So it's really just sort of trying to expose that that kind of lazy reliance on and saying, oh, everything is great because the Human Rights Act protects all of our freedoms. When in fact, it's it's sort of it's 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 been there throughout all these appalling erosions of civil liberties. And it's time that we sort of really reassessed its power to protect our freedom, I think. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I think some of will have to return to uh, again, and hopefully maybe we can get you on again when the book actually comes out. And I think that actually might be a nice segue uh, because Theresa May, the prime minister, as you called her, um, is the, what did you call her? The the, the authoritarian ringleader um, and who was home secretary yeah. and is a noted authoritarian um, is now running for election. And we're recording this uh, the day after the uh, London terrorist attack. And we don't want to go into that in, in much depth, I suppose. Um, but it is something that kind of is hanging over this. And it'll, I guess, uh, the future for civil liberties in the UK will uh, also be in large part determined by the outcome of this election. Listeners will know more or less what the score is in the UK in terms of this election. But just to restate it, a snap election was called by Theresa May only two years after the last one in attempt to strengthen her majority. But now what we have is her 24% odd lead in the polls has now shrunk in some cases to the low single digits. So it's all to play for in a way that's completely unexpected. Um, and more broadly, I think one of the thematics of this podcast is the sort of strange times that we live in. We've had the end of history and we've had the end of the end of history. But we do live in a time of a great confusion, as we've discussed a number of times in the past. We've got things that should maybe die and new things that we thought were dead. So we've got this zombie neoliberalism in the form of austerity politics, as well as a political resurgence of things that we thought were dead, like a social democratic come socialist labor party. And we also have new polarizations like globalist versus sovereigntists, which seem to cut across old political divides. And we discussed this in relation to the French election last month. And I think it's something that's very relevant to this one. So what we're going to do now is have a little bit of a discussion in about the main parties' manifestos, first of all, before we actually broaden out the discussion about the election as a whole. What I've just said is worth bearing in mind as we discuss this. Do these manifestos offer us some form of political clarity at all? So let's start off with the Conservatives' manifesto. And I think we'll just go around and take some sort of general impressions. What do we think of the Conservative manifesto? Is it an inspiring, uh, rousing document? Uh, George, what do you think? No, obviously it's not. Um, I think we talked at the top of the show about excitement um, in, in, uh, with, with respect to this election. And I think that the, the closer you get to the party's manifestos, the less excited that you're going to be. Um, most of my excitement we're just continually from, talking from, this down like the, the collection's not that exciting no, let's talk about the manifestos oh actually they're not that exciting so let's step away no go on i'm just i'm just i'm just letting read, uh, read listeners know that this you know there's 
well, maybe you know the rest of you discern something in this manifesto that I didn't that made it exciting. But most of my excitement comes from a kind of a kind of glee in in watching all these jolions and you know p- uh, political science profs being uh, wrong in their their predictions about how Labour's going to do, even more so than Labour actually doing well. So yeah, I don't. I I mean, Phil, Luke, did you spot anything in this um, in this document that you thought, wow, that's 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 a great policy, or that's a terrible one that's going to change society? No, no. I think the just that I would say the Tory manifesto is something which is built on despair. Really, uh, the first line is the next five. Is Theresa May saying the next five years will be the most challenging we have faced in my lifetime? It's a manifesto built around the possibility of disaster um, and the preference of having a relatively bland technocrat in the form of. Theresa May as opposed to Jeremy Corbyn I mean that's what she is selling um she is selling the ability of Theresa May to basically manage what they perceive to be an extremely difficult and turbulent time um so that's a, I think a key difference between the Tory manifesto and the Labour one is that you know some Labour MPs have been coming out and saying which I think they're right to say is that the Labour manifesto is about what they want to do and the Tory manifesto is largely about what they think they need to do in order to manage things. Um, and I think that as a result, the Tory manifesto has been deeply uninspiring for the majority of people. Phil, any dissension? I think that's that? right. No, no, I think that's right. I'd go further, though. I mean, it's clear, as Luke suggested, that the Tories have kind of built their pitch less around the manifesto and more around strong and stable leadership, the slogan of the campaign up until now, which... Um, crumbled so quickly in the face of Theresa May's lack of charisma and campaigning ability. But she's not a bland technocrat. Um, I mean, she's much worse than that. She is the, you know, she's the sinister sinister matriarch of the Home Office. She's Big Mother, you know. Big Mother is watching you would be the best kind of slogan for the um, for the Tories, for their kind of weird one-nation Toryism. Posters of Theresa May. (laughs) Posters of Theresa May looking at you. I mean, you know, she's most associated with propagating the surveillance state. And she has, you know, with the speech that she gave, the enough is enough speech, which she gave in response to the London terror attacks um, in the last 24 hours. It's very clear that she's going to exploit the opportunity to push forward with her agenda for barricading the internet as much as she possibly can, which has long been, you know, was long her kind of goal while she was um, Home Secretary. And her whole political ethos and persona is shaped by what one commentator called this vision of the protective state, um, most associated with with the Home Office, Um, this state that kind of um, gives you a certain restricted realm in which you, you know, have some kind of limited version of things that you can do, but basically looks after you and... And yeah, it's matriarchal. I mean, this is the thing that we, this is the appropriate adjective to describe for her political persona and for the kind of authoritarian vision that she's putting forward. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's right. And I think maybe this offers us an inroad to not be totally analytically dismissive of the manifesto itself, because I mean, we're, we're used to seeing conservative party politics be effectively sadomasochistic. I mean, that's what they offer, you know, what the score is. But I mean, is there not something in the manifesto that, uh, as you already alluded to, Phil, a sort of one a return in some sense to one nation Toryism, certainly on economic matters, uh, which is perhaps a deviation from the 
neoliberal form of politics that dominated it. I mean, they, they you know, they're promising to build uh, 1.5 million houses over the next uh, over the next period. So, that's, so Phil, that's before something. you before you answer this, before you answer this, can I just kind of um, frame this a little bit? And you know, this this is from the Guardian, which I sometimes read because I want to increase my blood pressure and have a heart attack before I'm 40. Um, but so Matthew Dan Koner, who's who's one of the, the Guardian uh, journalists. His response to the Conservative manifesto was that the headline was, we wanted a politics of audacity. May's manifesto delivers it. Um, and whatever you, he continues uh, somehow, whatever you think of the Conservative manifesto, it's emphatically not a blueprint for hedge betters, different splitters or cautious technocrats. So, Phil, to what, because obviously you agree uh, 75 to 100% with, with, this, with this analysis, but whereabouts is it between 75 and 100% agreement? <laughs> I don't... I feel like there's a trap in this question. That's, that's, that's but unbelievable, isn't it? That, that was a that was a normally centre left newspaper responding to probably the, one of the most dreary documents I've ever had to read. I mean, admittedly, this is this is Matthew Dancona, who was former editor of the Conservative uh, magazine, The Spectator. Um, so, I mean, he might have had some interest in talking up uh, the manifesto, but uh, man, I mean, is that going to convince anyone? It's not convinced me. So, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, One Nation Toryism isn't, you know, some kind of um, dramatic break with um, with the record of British political history. And it's worth bearing in mind, I mean, the promises for house building have been made repeatedly under many governments over the last 20 years. I mean, they've made tremendous promises in house building. None of them, none of them have delivered. So, I mean, the fact that they make kind of ambitious proposals for house building, I I don't think um, should be taken as a sign of uh, a new atmosphere of political radicalism or anything like that. No, I, indeed. But I think obviously much more significantly is the Labour Party manifesto, uh, which I think we should move on to discussing because we're just dismissing out of hand the fact that the Conservative Party manifesto could have anything interesting to discuss. So let's talk about the Labour Party manifesto. Is it a radical document? Uh, Luke, let's go to you. Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's certainly bold. And I think the one thing I can say about a Labour surge, the one thing I like about the Labour surge is that it does appear to be a persuasive document for a lot of people. It does seem to have changed the debate. Um, you know, it was marked that um, the polling did seem to change when this document was published. And I think it really worked against the kind of slur approach that Linton Crosby, the lead uh, campaign director for Theresa May has been mounting against Jeremy Corbyn. You know the stuff about the IRA and his affiliations with the apparent affiliations with the IRA and um, all of the sort of personal stuff. Really, the, the, the manifesto did at least manage to cut through some of that. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of the policies. I mean, I think nationalisation is a is a bit of a busted flush, frankly. But um, I think that on on the whole, it's good if people believe in this manifesto because it, it, it is at least a suggestion that they're open to persuasion on relatively big or, or you know impactful political ideas when the manifesto was published roughly when the polling started to turn around um and so i think it shows that the kind of negative campaign that's been put forward by linton crosby theresa may's lead strategist campaign manager uh, just isn't working and people are open to being persuaded on at least different ideas, a, a way of doing things which is fundamentally different in many respects of what's, what's gone before. I mean, it's worth noting that Labour are proposing significant cuts to public services, which is something which isn't usually talked about. Um, they're often seen as a sort of anti-austerity option, but 
I don't think they're taking a radically anti-austerity position. I mean, they are talking about significant public spending, um, but there are sections of the manifesto which talk about cuts and they're, you know, on immigration, for example, they're, they're largely touting what looks like a kind of points-based approach, you know, talking about bringing in immigrants as and when we need them for the kind of jobs that we need, etc. So it's not a, an enormously radical document itself, but it does seem to be um, opening up uh, the public to being persuaded on ideas. And I think that's that's an interesting thing to observe. Yeah, and it, it looks like it, uh, you know, has an element to which it goes, we're going to give you stuff that's going to make your life better. And so if you vote for us, things are going to get better, which is a completely mad, radical idea. But it's kind of the substance of politics. And in that sense, I think uh, it makes sense to talk about both the manifesto and this election in some sense as a return of politics, because um, it's not uh, one being fought entirely in terms of fear. Um, or of punishment, um, which I think a lot of uh, a lot of politics in Britain has been over the past uh, over the past ten fifteen years, right? I get George. I mean, th this is a, this is at least a, something to get a, a bit enthusiastic about, right? The Labour Party yeah, promises I mean, uh, that life might get better for you. That's cool. Yeah, I think austerity as a as a headline framing of politics is always tries to be anti political. It tries to put in a, a set of restrictions that you then um, have to negotiate and obviously these restrictions mean that basically people's lives are going to get a little bit worse with good management or a lot worse with bad management so it displaces all of that politics onto how well you can manage the, the economy and you know but picking up something on what Luke, Luke said the, yeah I think the Labour manifesto um, you know it's explicitly populist for the for the many not for the few um, and it but it does start from a, a perspective that if you vote for us, we will give you stuff. I mean, that's that's that is good. Uh, it, you know, there's obviously a long, long way to go before we see socialism. We probably won't see it on June the 9th or any time in in June, um, just to be realistic. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a good starting point. That that is a that is a step towards class politics and towards potentially transformative politics because you're basically saying you want stuff, we'll give it to you. Vote for us if we get the most votes. It's interesting in that respect that one of their key or one of their central pledges was to uh, scrap tuition fees. Now that's obviously an explicit gesture towards a particular voting base, i.e. the young middle class. And I think that's really where Labour gets a lot of its energy from, at least amongst its membership. You know, if you look at the people who are showing up to Labour meetings, it's not the work, you know, it's not working class blokes, it's uh, students and, uh, you know, middle class young people, really. Working class um, blokes? I think that working class blokes? What are you, like an anti-feminist, Luke? Alex, have you yes. like, invited an anti-feminist onto our podcast? <laughs> yeah. Working-class geezers. conservative, man. Yeah, absolutely. No, but I think it's... it's it's. I, I certainly don't think that Corbyn's Labour has reclaimed um, the traditional Labour voting base. I think they're still as, 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 as sort of cut adrift from their old um, working-class voting base as they ever have been. But who knows? I mean, the, the problem is, you know, who who knows what the polling is going to, how it's going to relate to what actually happens in the election. Yeah, and I think we're um, going to come on to that. So I don't want to start on that just yet, because we have to talk a little bit okay. more about the manifestos. Um, one last yeah. thing about the Labour manifesto is, and this is, I think, maybe the more interesting bit, at least for me, was... You know, as we've already discussed, one accepts or one assumes that, you know, a left Labour, uh, a left wing leadership of the Labour Party would 
defend welfareism in some form, um, which is fine as far as it goes. Um, but what is more remarkable is a sort of edging towards a more national development plan in terms of public investment, um, not just in infrastructure, but in, in, in the economy proper. Um, I think that's interesting. I mean, Phil, do you have any views on this? I think this is this marks a, a pretty significant change um, in terms of British political economy. I'm not sure. I mean, the... Um... The commitment to, I think Luke is right, to identify the fact the popularity and the kind of energy around the manifesto it could be overstated in terms of the, you know, I mean, there are many things in there that I think, you know, in principle aren't bad ideas, such as the um, the extension of public holidays associated with each of the nations of the UK. Um, no, that's a bad railways. idea. I read, I read something in The Guardian that said that public holidays are bad because if you have a bank holiday, everybody goes to the beach and it's too busy. So I'm sorry, Phil, but the Guardian's right in your <laughs> Guardian, way. always reliable uh, to be just absolute miserable bastards. Whether or not there is genuine kind of infrastructure spending um, based on the low interest rates that go a government would pay today for deficit spending, we would have to see. Um, I wouldn't hold my breath because I think it requires more than just the kind of political statement. I think the way in which it would require... Um, demolishing kind of certain knotted interests that have been built up and accumulated in the functioning of the British state um, over the last 20 years. Quangos, special interest groups, um, NIMBYs, I mean, all sorts of kind of um, thorny, difficult, um, tightly bundled concentrations of political opposition would be encountered. Yeah, I think but that's a really good point because I that sets up, a, I mean, if there were a Labour government, sets up a really interesting potential confrontation there uh, between Labour's pledges and the existing structures of neoliberal managerialism, uh, which you just alluded to, all the quangos, the special interest groups, and so on. Okay, so let's, let's actually talk about Labour's surge. Where has it come from? The, the, so is the strength is it off the back of the strength of Labour's policies or Labour's leadership even? Or is it just reflect the weakness of May and maybe the unpopularity of the Tories, which seems surprising given how popular she, May, Theresa May personally looked uh, a matter of weeks ago? So how do we, where do we attribute Labour's surge to? It's young. I mean, I think it's um, a generational divide. So, you know, pensioners are going to go for the Tory party and young people are particularly attracted to, I mean, more kind of instinctively remain, but also attractive, attracted to the promise to abolish tuition fees. So it's partly that, but I think also it's just political restructuring. I mean, there is no other way to describe what's going on. It's very, all the kind of pieces um, are, you know, all the pieces in the kaleidoscope, to quote Tony Blair, are being kind of altered. So it's very difficult to get a clear sense of, what the pattern is that's emerging yeah i mean i, I, I just want sorry go on no i was just going to say i was at a friend's birthday party yesterday he turned 30 yesterday and his girlfriend had bought him the front page of the newspaper from the day he was born um which was yesterday in 1987 and what was remarkable was that on the front page was a story about labor's surge in the 1987 polls um, and it could have been an article written today, uh, you know, talks of a, a sort of liberal alliance between the liberal parties emerging, um, talking about the collapse of the Tory vote. 
and of course on to win Thatcher went on to win a landslide in 87 so I was still incredibly nervous about this or, or, or whether or not this is true I mean it goes back to that question about Poland isn't it but it's just worth you know worth retaining a degree of skepticism about about what is going on I mean I just can't make any predictions at the moment I, and it's it becomes so difficult to talk about what might be actually happening because we've just been here so often before and it's so often led to completely uh, the opposite result that people were expecting. Yeah, I think this is this is it. I mean, th there's a suspicion that, I mean, maybe listeners will remember Clegmania back from uh, the 2010 election where suddenly Nick Clegg had this sudden surge of popularity. Man, I can't say that without laughing. It's so ridiculous. Nick Clegg is such a, a nothing <laughs> of a human being, a politician, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, that it's it's crazy. But that was so clearly it's, a media that you have to explain who he is? Yeah, to, I mean, to listeners. that's right. People have Wikipedia. Don't forget, he, he slept. He has he has had thirty sexual partners. That's, that's like right. a big thing. <laughs> this was actually a funny prelude to Trump bragging about penis size, except that like it's the most British version of it because Nick Clegg is such a nothing, uh, milk toast sort of human being, um, Lib Dem type. That uh, that him bragging about sexual partners was like the most kind of strident declaration that he's ever made in his life um but but that was but i think anyway but being a little bit more serious that that phenomenon was very clearly a media bubble right that was a media concoction and i think any more astute yeah. observers at the time knew that was i don't think we can definitively say that that's the case with labor now because i mean the media has been pretty universally hostile to corbyn's leadership so i don't think that's the case but again i agree with what luke just said that it's very hard to call to me, the, the labor surge has not been the hugest surprise. I think the extent of it has been surprising. But I thought as soon as they would start to fight the election on their policies, that a lot of their policies, most polling has already shown way before the election was called, that a lot of their policies are popular. Railway nationalization is the biggest open goal in British politics. And I've personally been saying that for like 10 years. And I'm amazed that it's taken this long for someone to actually propose it. But, you know, it's popular. People are into it. Just picking up on the on, on the railway nationalisation point, I think even for some conservative commuters, sort of south of London, the the railway service is so bad it's almost a single issue for them that could actually turn them towards towards the Labour Party. Um, but yeah, to, to pick up on the point about what I guess what explains this surge, yeah, I think the optimist in me would like to believe that finally, you know, the the conservative press has run out of 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 shit to sling at, at Corbyn and they're coming up with some really weak source IRA stuff which I don't think is, is very convincing to many people and so now finally the, the policies are being discussed and they are just more popular than the, than the Tory policies which would be which would be fantastic and I do think there's an extent to which I kind of want to get a bit carried away with this election um, because it's the first time that I've felt in British politics to be in this potential situation so I've definitely been enjoying various uh, various uh, re re uh, recreations of um, Stephen Gerrard's goal in the, in the 2005 Champions League final oh, man. with Jeremy Corbyn's head on him after he scored and he's saying, here we go, so, here we go. So this, so this um, gift, this, this, this gift, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Liverpool supporter and, and that, that, I mean, you could have Adolf Hitler's head on that and I'd probably be going, you know what, maybe this Adolf Hitler guy is probably kind of all right. <laughs> that gift could make, convince me to support anything. Um, but yeah. You should I, probably edit that out in the final version, Alex. Um, but yeah, I, I, I share that I share that enthusiasm. I think an, another interesting sort of phenomenon to observe is that poll at least if the polls are correct, 
a sort of duopolization of British politics. You know, I mean, it's something like Labour and Tory combined are running at about 80% uh, of the vote, um, which is a much greater share than in the recent past in the UK. And it's also a significant divergence from trends in the continent where party, more marginal parties uh, seem to be gaining support at the expense of the traditional um, Christian Democrats and Social Democrats uh, on the centre-right and centre-left, respectively. So why do we think this is? It's kind of odd, right? I have to intervene here. Um, I think, I mean, the, you know, George's fantasy of um, British socialism, um, which is to say the kind of resurgent state welfareist vision, is just um, horrible, ugly. It's just, and it's also just not going to happen. The, I mean, you know, the duopolization, like you call it, isn't a good thing. It's a bad thing. Um, one of the good things would, that would have come from elect from the annihilation of the Labour Party would be greater pressure for a reform of the first past the post system, and also the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has managed to revitalize the Labour Party is a tragedy for the British left. You know, the one slim kind of chance that they had to finally, for the British left, to finally emancipate themselves from the Labour Party, and it looked almost possible, um, now looks like it might, you know, if we if the opinion polls are to be believed, that it might, even that possibility might be um, destroyed, and that the British left will remain in hock to the Labour Party for the next 20 years. And that, that is tragic. Um I was a little bit more balanced than you on this, Phil. I mean, my, my position has always been my first choice would be actually for Corbyn's Labour to win and, and for, the, for, for it to kind of kickstart politics again in Britain, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. But my second choice was for Labour's annihilation. I think the third scenario, which is the worst one in my opinion, would be a, a, a situation where Labour comes close but no cigar. And so hopes remain vested in the Labour Party from the left. So there's no break from it, but actually you don't actually, Corbyn isn't actually able to form a government. And that for me is probably the most likely scenario. And that's a little bit depressing, right? Well, it's worth remembering that the Labour Party is basically a zombie organisation. You know, as things stand at the moment, most of the MPs, especially around London, have been campaigning openly against Jeremy Corbyn in the lead up to the election. And ever since the election is announced, it's been completely silent about him. So I can't imagine that, uh, you know, his success will translate into a sort of resurgence of left-wing socialism within the Labour Party, because I think those MPs who loathe Jeremy Corbyn and who have openly loathed him in the months leading up to the election will simply interpret it as a victory for themselves and for their management of their local constituencies, um, rather than a public uh, nationwide endorsement of, of Jeremy Corbyn's political project. Um, and I think Phil's basically right. I mean, the most depressing outcome of this would be for the Labour Party to continue in this kind of zombie state. It's depressing for um, anyone who's interested in progressive politics that this organisation purports to stand for the for the British left. I mean, it deserves to die. It has to die. And as long as it doesn't die, it continues in 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 it, it's as a completely dysfunctional um, zombie organisation. And I just don't think that can be in any way interpreted as a positive yeah i mean i, I don't think the, i don't think the victory or or, or the, the the narrow defeat of of labor under corbyn necessarily shows the strength of labor as an institution i think in fact there's a potential that i would that i hope might be realized that the more people who are attracted to labor under corbyn the more that that just shows the internal contradictions of that organization 
which hopefully eventually will will blow it apart um and you can then see the right of the of the labor party going to some kind of progressive blairite kind of dead end and then potentially then i mean that's 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 the opportunity for real reform and hopeful hopefully something other than the labor party which i agree under any kind of sensible analysis has been blocking progressive politics for the last 50 longer years um and yeah i mean needs to die in order to be reborn or whatever yeah i mean i i, I guess the, the the point that was made that you know corbyn isn't going to carry into parliament a whole new generation of mps in the way that blair did in 97 obviously from a very different political standpoint that was in 97 but he, you know he had blair's babes he had this whole new generation of new labor horrible mps corbyn isn't going to be able to do that um so i guess yeah one can imagine a situation which uh, a, a labor government would be completely under consistent challenge internally um in terms of uh, policy direction um which kind of maybe kind of exciting right I mean, is George not right then that that this would still be an opportune uh, situation for the left, even with uh, even with no. uh, Labour in power? No. No. Go on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the revival of Labour is not a good thing. I mean, you know, kind of speaking about British politics. I mean, that there has been kind of a, a general broadening of the political spectrum in terms of the range of uh, choices that are available to the electorate. And like we said, the idea, the fragmentation of the idea that there is no alternative, the offering of positive policies rather than just kind of leadership through difficult times and um, project fear style visions, you know, that's positive kind of abstractly. But the revival, the revival of the Labour Party for the left is not like all your, you know, take the take the kind of um, extreme kind of George scenario, right? say that Labour wins kind of astoundingly and that it even has kind of enough seats to form a government without a coalition, all you're looking at, yeah, 30 years from now is a whole new generation of disappoint of people who are disappointed in Labour, right, who will kind of look for more kind of, um, they will either kind of tack towards the centre or they will look for more kind of uh, meaningful kind of far left options. And if George is making kind of the point that he's going to be there to lead the kind of people who are disappointed and who are going to be looking for more far left options, you know, you know, fair enough. Um, we look forward to George kind of leading, you know, the kind of uh, the SWP of the future. But um, I mean, realistically, that would be my slogan. <laughs> realistically speaking, like the you know the Labour Party is not going to deliver. Okay. I think I think one thing which potentially, and I don't know how how much we want to get into the this kind of this 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 mire, but the, the potential role of momentum as a as a group within Labour, and which is not necessarily restricted to Labour, but is currently present within it. I think that there is a strong desire for the de democratisation of the Labour Party, which which could mean a fundamental change in its structure. Uh, I don't I don't know how far we want to go into that, but that's what I'm holding out my hope for. And, you know, you know, inevitably we'll be disappointed sooner or later, probably. But um, I think, yeah, like I said before, this is a chance to get a little bit. I mean, there's there's a little bit carried away 
it's like what's all, what's an offer is a higher quality of disappointment than available elsewhere uh, and for that exactly. we should be thankful exactly we're getting qualitatively more disappointed i'm really looking forward to it it's gonna be amazing <laughs> excellent um okay so let's let's move on to to my favorite topic where uh, we can prognosticate like uh, like fucking idiots about something which will be proved wrong on uh, within a matter of days so let's do it um but let me let me ask let me ask a, a little bit more of a precise question. Um, I personally think there's going to be whatever the final outcome and configuration in in Parliament is going to be. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of local weirdness. I think the reconfiguration of British politics that's underway, um, partly due to Brexit, uh, will lead to some weird results. Um, do we do we agree with that? What do you have any specific predictions or anything to look out for uh, on election day that you think will happen, Luke? Well. Uh, there was polling to suggest that Amber Rudd might lose her seat, um, which just shows how bizarre some results could be in this in this election. You know, Amber Rudd being the woman that the Conservative Party chose to send to represent them in the in the leaders' debate. Um, I think you're right that th what matters here is is regions, uh, and I think the regions are going to make all the difference. The Lib Dems in the southwest is a really interesting thing to watch because. A lot of Lib Dem MPs are representing Brexit constituencies, constituencies that voted to leave, um, and are now Lib Dems are actively running on the on a campaign to effectively undermine the result of the referendum. So, I would my, my only my only prediction and perhaps my only hope really would be that the Lib Dems face electoral wipeout, particularly in those areas where their MPs have openly expressed a, a lack of willingness to carry out the vote of their. Of their electorate, so that's 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 one issue I think is worth keeping an eye on. That would that would be quite fun to watch the Lib Dems being wiped out. Um, anything else? Just to see Tim, just to see Tim Farron, just to see Tim Farron's stupid face crumple up in despair and start crying. I think that'd be wonderful for everyone to watch. Like I said, this crying. is this is the new this is the new thing that's been brought into politics that I haven't really experienced in my lifetime, which is just taking pleasure at people's misfortune that you don't like. And I think there's going to be quite a lot of it in the coming months and years. So there's definitely, I mean, there's, there's, there's some warning against that, but who cares? Actually, one, um, one thing I wanted to say in terms of, I just guess a reflection on the whole um, campaign. Is this what's supposed to be the Brexit election? And I, I don't think, I just, I don't think it has been. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed um, in a way because I've been, you know, we've, we've talked a bit, I guess, a bit off offline, off this podcast about the importance of, of Brexit as well as, as, as on it. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't feel that's, that's really come through as a, a kind of an era defining, this is what this um, uh, campaign was about. It's more been maze unravelling. That's been the dominant narrative, at least. That's right, isn't it? I mean, like, it, the, the whole question of Brexit has been a bit shoved, you know, pushed under the rug a little bit. And it's a little bit like we're going to have these negotiations with the EU and there'll be an outcome of that. And the Tories have been more explicit in, in being willing to walk away if there's no deal, whereas Labour haven't been. But the idea of the shape the country should take in light of Brexit and what Brexit would actually mean beyond Brexit means Brexit, uh, as Theresa May said, uh, hasn't really been fought out, has it? At least that's my impression. I think that's partly the result of um, Labour sort of being unwilling to grapple with the question of Brexit. I mean, Labour's stance on Brexit has been confusing uh, from the word go. Um, a lot of people were confused about whether they were seeking single market membership, whether they'd seek to stay in the um, 
you know, in, in, as, as part of the jurisdiction of the European Court. Um, and even though they do have quite a, a savvy operator under Keir Starmer, you know, Keir Starmer, the, uh, he's a, he would be the person negotiating if Jeremy Corbyn was uh, prime minister. Um, they just haven't played the Brexit debate at all. And it's really been the elephant in the room for the Labour Party. Uh, and partly because so many Labour MPs have again been saying, uh, you know, at this hustings I was at the other night, Neil Coyle saying things like, I will never vote for Article 50. No matter what, I will simply not vote for it to be, uh, or I will not vote for, I will always vote against uh, leaving the European Union, you know, if, if there was any result, uh, any of the vote on the deal, for example. So Labour just hasn't reconciled itself with Brexit yet. It hasn't come to terms with the fact that it's going to happen, really. Um, I mean, that started to change in the last couple of weeks with Jeremy Corbyn saying we acknowledge the result of the referendum and we're going to carry it out. But still, it's massively unresolved as to how they would approach it. And I think that that's reflective of deep disagreement amongst members, even of their leading, you know, even the leadership, I think, are deeply divided on that question. Yeah, I think it's pretty yeah, that, graphically demonstrated. There's a, chart, there's a chart which shows uh, Labour's long-term polling and when as soon as the Brexit vote happened, their support absolutely fell off a cliff. And it's very clear that Labour went into this election in a very disfavourable um, situation off the back of the fact that they were not clear enough on their stance on Brexit and really kind of failed to fail to support it, despite Jeremy Corbyn's long term Euroscepticism, um, which he has kind of hid, hid under a bushel for a long time. But I, I agree with George that I think they've been a little bit better on this recently and maybe that um, shows up in polling, you know, maybe there's maybe the labor surge is in part based on the fact that they've been a bit more explicit about supporting Brexit now, um, especially in light of the fact that a that there's only a rump of 20% of the population now, which is which uh, would be what one would call hard remainers, people who still don't want to leave the EU despite the popular vote. Most people have accepted the result, even if they had voted against it. Um, Phil, anything, any, anything on this, or or anything to look out for on election night? I think, I mean, the um, the study, the ambiguity of the Labour Party um, on Brexit is really important for the reason you said, and also a tremendous indictment of Jeremy Corbyn. The thing that could have potentially allowed him to bend popular support in his favour against the um, Labour Party elite, who were so thoroughly remain. He could have really used it to devastate them with tremendous um, electoral gains, which all the polls show. If he had come, if he had followed his kind of Eurosceptic instinct, um, is an indictment of his um, of his opportunism. The fact that he gave in to on that particular option and went instead for the empty symbolism of uh, being ambivalent about Trident and the rest of it is uh, is a terrible indictment of um, of him as a political leader. Beyond that, I mean, I don't think that the, um, I don't think that the, I mean, I think the real issue for Brexit isn't remain, it's leave, right? It's whether or not the, um, whether or not the people who voted for leave and whether or not the people who campaigned for leave and whether or not the people who led leave, the political leaders of leave, whether or not they're able to deliver on what they think Brexit might be. Um, so the greatest threat to Brexit, I think, is the absence of vision on the part of Leave, rather than on um, Remainers, these sad kind of, um, the sad squeals of the chattering classes being squeezed by democracy 
whether or not they'll be able to sabotage or subvert the outcome of the referendum. The real, and we shouldn't hide behind those kinds of images and visions. The real question is whether or not Leave will be able to deliver a meaningful, a meaningful um, outcome of the vote for democratic and popular sovereignty. Okay. Um, I mean, we're going to have to stop wrapping this up. Thanks very much, guys, for for the discussion. I hope listeners have uh, found renewed enthusiasm for British politics. Um, as a final sort of uh, whip round, I am going to ask you a couple for four different things. One, a prediction of uh, the, sh- the respective share of votes for Labour and Conservative and what you think and who you think will end up forming a government on the 9th of June. Um, I don't care. You're going to be proved wrong and you can't escape from it. I'm going to push you on it. Um, and then the second thing I'm going to ask, what are you doing on election night? What are you drinking? And what is the thing that's going to make you happiest to see on election night? So we'll start with George. Yeah, good, good, good set of uh, predictions. I hope if I can, I can remember all the things I'm supposed to be predicting. Um, oh, it just, it just makes me think if Corbyn had come out with left-wing Brexit, this could be so different, but I'm going to say, so Conservative 42, Labour 37, I think the Tories will get 335 seats. I'll be drinking um, whiskey because it'll probably be sad. Um, and what will make me happy? Oh, you've, you've got to take pleasure in, in, in small things, so I don't know. Whoever is the, the worst out of the four of us uh, in their prediction, as long as it's not me, that will give me pleasure. Excellent, excellent. Phil? So what will make me happiest is um, the total rout of the Labour Party an unexpected, resounding victory for Theresa May, um, fairly either that or communist revolution. Um, what I think is actually going to happen is crossed. probably... <laughs> I didn't know communist revolution was on the cards. I, I, I'm voting for that one. And that might be very late, happy. George, be it's too late, late. You're trying to make up your reputation now. It's too late, too late. Um, realistically, I think Theresa May is probably going to get a you know majority, maybe 25, something like that. Um, so something which will prolong the kind of agony of the of this kind of the dying of this particular phase and cycle of British politics. Um, while I'll be drinking, I'll probably be drinking a. I'm going to be in Cardiff um, for work, and I'm probably going to by that time in the evening. I'm probably going to be drinking a ale, a bitter, something like that. Excellent, Luke. Uh, yeah. It's, it's- Small Tory majority, less than we expected. Um, mild, pretty embarrassing for Theresa May. Small boost for Jeremy Corbyn, and we carry on as normal. That would be the most depressing outcome, I think. Um, my, what would make me happy? Similarly, a, a, a defeat of Labour, a wipeout of Labour, and a wipeout of the Lib Dems as well. Um, that would make me really happy. As I said, just playing into what George was talking about earlier, just to see. Tim Farrow and miserable would make me really happy. Um, what will I be drinking? I'm actually going to be in a wedding um, in Ibiza. So, um, <laughs> God no, God no, not on election night. But, um, we're, we're, I'm going to I'm going to find some Ibiza bar to watch the results in. You're like God knows always, what I'll be drinking. You're always like drinking at weddings. Like you're just talking about how you were at a wedding the other night. Now you're drinking at weddings yeah. again. Like it's okay being a lawyer, huh? 
Yeah, Luke, yeah, Luke's no, it's great. Everyone just constantly gets married and remarried, and you just live in a constant cycle of champagne and uh, debauchery. So it's great. Luke's also now exposed himself as like some horrible British expat looking forward to Tory Britain and living the life in Spain. This is great. <laughs> God, yeah, but this is what this is, it, isn't it? This is what these strange times do to you. Maybe. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, thank you guys very much. Alex, um, what about your prediction? Oh, okay. So I'm gonna go for a. I'm gonna also go for. I think Labour is actually gonna have a slightly larger share of the vote than the Conservatives, something like forty-two to forty percent. Uh, and it, but it's still gonna result in a Tory majority, but a very small one. Um, they maybe get three hundred fifteen seats or something like that. Uh, I am gonna be drinking Brazilian cachaça, uh, seeing as I'm in Brazil. And I think the thing that would make me happiest would, uh, I mean, I'm, I've got a, I've got a double down on the Tim Farron tears. That's pretty good. Um, and also Amber Rudd losing her seat. That's gonna be great. Um, anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening to Alpha Bunga Bunga. A big thanks again for our guest Luke Gittos. Uh, and see you next time. Bye-bye. Woo!